Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. Anyway, uh, today we're finishing up our series in the book of First John, and uh, kind of gone, has gone fast, uh, only five chapters in First John, and next week is Pentecost Sunday, and so we're going to begin a series on the Holy Spirit, and who is the Holy Spirit, and what does it mean to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, so looking forward to that as we go through the summer. But again, as we've looked at First John, we've seen that John has been addressing a false teaching that was running rampant in the first century, and that false teaching was Gnosticism, and we've mentioned that every week, and part of the core of this was that everything that was fleshly was evil, and everything spiritual was good, and so this had several implications. One of them was Jesus couldn't be both flesh and spirit, and so they say Jesus was a man, and the spirit of the Christ, the Messiah, came upon him when he was baptized and departed from him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But also with this belief that you know, we can't have this connection of body and spirit became this conviction that nothing you do in the flesh impacts you spiritually. And so it became a spiritual free-for-all. Do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You know, whatever sin you commit is not going to impact your spirit. And John is writing to address these errors. But as he comes to chapter 5, we're going to look at these final thoughts that John has in this letter. And obviously he's going to write a second letter and a third letter, uh, far shorter, but following up on these themes. And the first thing he talks about in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, is the overflow of love. The overflow of love. Uh, love has been a theme that has been prominent throughout the book of 1 John. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so again, a theme that he has repeated over and over is that Jesus' followers ought to love each other. That a, a mark of people who follow Jesus is love for each other and love for the world around them. Verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. So again, one of the themes that John has been addressing is that as a Jesus follower... Not only do we have to be firmly rooted in right doctrine, but there needs to be obedient living and fervent devotion. And so he's been looking at what does it mean to live in obedience? Obedience being connected to our love for Jesus. And he's made this point over and over that if you're a genuine follower of Jesus, the overall theme of your life is growing in obedience. But if the theme of your life is disobedience and sin, then that means that there's a problem when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. In verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments 
are not burdensome. I love that. That his commandments were never meant to be burdensome. And again, this is a contrast to what many of the Jewish people would have recognized. Because again, this was one of the critiques that Jesus has of the Pharisees. He talks about the Pharisees putting a, a weight on the shoulders of the people that they themselves can't even live up to. And so John's made this distinction that there's two different ways to approach obedience. That on the one hand, obedience can be seen as this list of things to do and you just have to hunker down and do them. And John's been saying that's not what love-based obedience looks like. Rather, it's out of the overflow of love that you obey. In other words, it's like a marriage where in your marriage, if you are constantly trying to do all the right things to earn love from your spouse, that is not a pleasant marriage to be a part of. But rather, if you love your spouse, out of the overflow of that love should come a desire to serve them and do things for them and express that love in how you live. And so John's saying that this is the love of God to keep his commandments, but not in a burdensome way. Not as this heavy weight upon your shoulder, of, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, but as an expression of love. Not to earn salvation, not to earn your way to heaven, but in gratitude to who Jesus is and what he's done to let obedience flow out of love. And then in verse four, he says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? I love that means that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have overcome the world. That we have been put into this position of living a victorious Christian life. In Romans, Paul talks about this as we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, we don't live this life of, I can't help myself, I, I just sin, it's just what I do. I, I can't help it, the devil made me do it, or somebody else made me do it. He said, no, we have overcome the world. We've overcome all that. We have victory through Christ. And so John, even throughout the letter, talks about the fact that the, the goal, the ideal, what we strive for as Jesus followers is to live in perfect obedience to Jesus. But because we're humans, we're going to fall short. But again, the Gnostics would say it doesn't matter if you fall short. Just do whatever you want. It doesn't affect your spirit. And John says, no. Your body and your spirit are connected. And your spirit and your body need to work together in obedience. But we have overcome the world. We do have the choice. When we sin, we can't just sit back as helpless victims of somebody else made me do this or somebody else forced me to do this, but to acknowledge that we made the choice to do it. Even if it's somebody who hurts you, and you hold the grudge against them, you can say, well, it's because they did this to me. And that might be true. While they have sinned against you, it doesn't give you license to react sinfully to what they did. We still have the choice to how we respond to those around you. And so that means the only thing holding us back from living like Jesus is us. Because the Bible says he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. 
He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He set us free from the power of sin and death. We're more than conquerors. We have been set free to live victoriously for Jesus. So the choice is ours. And John says the overflow of our love for Jesus is going to be a growing obedience, a growing sense of Christ-likeness in our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, and our behaviors. But the second thing he focuses on here in this final chapter is the offer of the Son. The offer of the Son in verses 6 through 12. He says in verse 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is a testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. What, what's he getting at? Saying that this is what it comes down to. This is who Jesus is. One who was born of water and the blood. Now, is he talking about baptism, crucifixion? Is he simply talking about the fleshly reality of Jesus? One could say yes to both of them. The reality is Jesus is God in flesh. God came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, not just a spirit that came upon a man at his baptism and left at Gethsemane, but from the moment he was conceived, Jesus was God in flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect and sinless life in the flesh, and was crucified on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. This is what it comes down to. And then verse 10, he says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Eternal life is found in Jesus, period. Jesus said of himself in John 14, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. You'd say, well, I believe in the same God as you, but I don't believe in Jesus. Well, John says, then you're in a whole different camp. Eternal life hinges on Jesus. And what have we done with Jesus? Have we believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in human flesh who died on the cross and rose from the dead? And it comes down to that key of belief. Do we believe in Jesus, the Son of God? Again, our Western mentality says believe is intellectual. Yes, I, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe all that intellectually. That's not the question. The question in the Hebrew frame reference was, if you believe it, then you do something about it. Then you surrender your life to what you believe in. So the question for John isn't just, because again, the Gnostics could play funny with their language. Yes, we believe in Jesus. Oh, great. Then we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Not so fast. Do they believe in Jesus Christ? 
fully God and fully man. Jesus said, it's him or nothing. Do we believe in him? Do we surrender our lives to him and say, Jesus, there's nothing that I can do to get myself to heaven. There's not enough good things I can do. There's not enough righteous deeds I can do to get to heaven. I can't sit in church enough hours in my life to earn a spot in heaven. It's only through accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior that I can have eternal life. The life is only in his son, Jesus Christ. So number three, verses 13 to 21, he talks about the overcoming life. The overcoming life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I love it when authors kind of tell you blatantly what their purpose is in writing their letter. I always get those Bible classes in college of, well, what's the purpose of this book? John makes it really easy. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure it out because he tells you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know and know and know that you have eternal life. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. For the first part of my life, I did not know that I had eternal life. I hoped that I had eternal life. But again, going back to the original audience for the Gnostics, the core of Gnosticism was really a secret knowledge that only a select few had. So if I'm an outsider looking in, how do I know if I've got the special knowledge that'll get me to heaven? I don't. And I grew up initially thinking that, well, ultimately I need to make sure my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and then I can go to heaven. But how do I know? I can't see the scales. I don't know what's piling up. I, I don't know. I can only hope and do my best. And hope that maybe, kind of, I could maybe get to heaven. And John says, no. You can know, right here, right now, that you have eternal life. And it hinges on what do you do with Jesus. Do you say yes to Jesus? I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Or are you trying to get there on your own good works? If you try to get to heaven by your own good works, not only can you never know if you've done enough, but the Bible solves the riddle for you. Because Isaiah, in a very graphic way, says all of our righteous deeds, all the best things we do, it's just a bunch of filthy rags. Well, that's not very encouraging. There's no amount of good deeds we can do. It's only through Jesus Christ. We can have more than a hope. We can have more than a guess. We can have the certainty of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. What? Listen to that again. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So does that mean I can ask for the Steelers to go undefeated next year and win the Super Bowl? No. Sadly. They're going to have to try that on their own. What does it mean then? Well, John gives us the clue. If we ask anything according to his will, 
as much as I like to think that God is a Steelers fan, I don't know that the NFL has any concern to the will of God. We can ask for anything in line with the will of God, and he will hear an answer. So what is the will of God? The will of God is that people come to know Jesus as Savior. The will of God is that none should perish, but that all the would come to eternal life. The will of God was that, it, that more laborers would be sent to the harvest field. We can look through scripture and find pretty good estimates of his will. First Thessalonians, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. God wants you to be more like Jesus. That's part of his will. We can pray towards that. The overcoming life means that we can be a part of advancing the kingdom of God advancing the rule and reign of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, seeing lives transformed by Jesus Christ and not simply living in fear and hunkering down and just trying to ride this thing out. But we were called for more than that. To ask anything according to the will of God that the glory of Jesus would be known throughout the world. But then he gets into sticky ground. In verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. What's that about, John? There are sins that lead to death. Someone who goes on a violent rampage, that's a sin that's going to lead to death. But what's John specifically getting at? There is a sin that leads to spiritual death. It's a sin that when we get in our series on the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at this in more detail. It's a sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, you can, any sin you want can be, can be forgiven, but there's one that can't be. And that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we'll keep you in suspense. You'll have to come to hear that message. But the bottom line is, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is fundamentally rejecting Jesus Christ. Dying in a state of rejecting Jesus as Savior is the one sin that's going to lead to spiritual death. The one sin that cannot be forgiven is dying in a state of wanting nothing to do with Jesus or refusing Jesus Christ as Savior. So he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that not leading to death, any other sins, he shall ask, and God will give him life. So John's saying, look, the Gnostics are saying, don't worry about sin, don't care about sin. And John's saying, care about sin. If you see your brother committing a sin, Jesus gives us this whole process of how to restore that fallen brother. He said, when you see somebody engaging in sin, don't just sit back and say, hey, you do you, I'll do me, and we'll just live our lives. That's what the Gnostics would say. John says, no, be a part of each other's lives. And say, hey, brother, I feel like you're sitting in this area. Let me walk with you and work with you through this. Let's, let's address it and deal with it and move on. But verse 18, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Again, as we saw as early back as chapter 1, 
This idea of keeps on sinning, it's a participle. It means it's a continuous, ongoing, defining attribute of your life. Now, I could put on a pristine white outfit because it's not after Labor Day, I guess. If you, if you know that rule, ex explain it. I don't understand why you can't wear white after Labor Day. If I wore a pristine white outfit and I was walking around minding my own business and there was a mud puddle and I had this moment of, and it was really hot out and that mud might be cool. I mean, pigs cool off by rolling in the mud, so why don't I go for it? And I roll around in the mud and get dirty and say, okay, not only did that, was it not refreshing, but now I feel gross and disgusting. So I take a shower and I, I bleach the clothes and they're pristine white again. And I go for days, weeks, months, and then I see another mud puddle. It's like, maybe it was more refreshing than I thought. And I end up in the mud again. Would you define me as a mud roller? No. It's some couple weird choices along the way, but in general, no, I'm not a mud roller. I mean, but if I put on this pristine white outfit and every time I saw a mud puddle, I just dove in. And I climbed out of that mud puddle, I found another, and I dove in that. To the point where my white outfit is nowhere near white anymore. It gets to the point where no matter how much it's washed, it just doesn't get white again. Would you then define me as a mud roller? Maybe. I seem to have a thing for mud. This is the distinction John makes. He's not saying as a follower of Jesus, you're going to live a perfect life. He says the defining quality of your life is somebody who follows Jesus, who becomes more and more like Jesus, who less and less often rolls around in the mud. That's very different from somebody who every chance they see mud, they're going to dive in. And they might occasionally clean up and look pristine again, but as soon as they see mud, you know exactly what they're going to do. And John says, this is a way to distinguish who's a follower of Jesus and who's not, and who's just giving lip service or pretending. People who follow Jesus want to be like Jesus and want to show love for Jesus and obedience, and they're not going to be drawn to every mud puddle they walk past. He says, if, if somebody proclaims to be a Jesus follower, and as you watch their life unfold, they just keep diving in mud every time they see it, and there's never repentance, there's never confession, there's never any remorse. John says, that's not the mark of a Jesus follower. Because people who love Jesus want to become like him. Verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. Notice verse 20 again. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. It's God who opens our hearts to show us our need for the Savior. The Gnostics proclaimed that they were the sole controllers of truth. And only they could decide who got to know the truth and who didn't get to know the truth. And John says, no, that comes from God. Because if you walk around thinking, I have the secret knowledge that nobody else has and nobody else has access to unless I give it to them, can you imagine the pride that comes with that? 
But John says the only reason we know that we need a Savior is because God made that clear to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the enemy blinds the minds of unbelievers. It takes a supernatural work from God to pull those blinders back and show us our need of a Savior. We don't need the Gnostics to give us their secret knowledge if we're redeemed worthy of it. It's God who opens our hearts. It's God who opens our minds. And then verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The worship of something or someone else other than God. Whether it's a false teaching of Gnosticism, whatever it might be, anything that competes for the supremacy of Christ in our lives can become an idol. And it seems odd that John ends this way. That he just kind of like, okay, I'm done. Just keep yourselves from idols. Peace out. It's rather abrupt. But I think John has said everything there is to say. He's addressed the Gnosticism that's running rampant in the church and said, stay away from it. Here's why their teaching is bad. Here's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So stop letting yourselves get led astray by false teaching. The false teaching had become an idol. Because can you imagine if you've got this popularity contest of who's got the secret knowledge, who doesn't have the secret knowledge, who's in, who's out, it becomes an idol. It becomes something that you strive for more than you simply strive for Jesus himself. And so John says one way to keep yourself from being led astray by false teaching and false teachers and all kinds of weird stuff is just keep yourself from idols, period. Keep your focus on Jesus and what it means to love him and follow him. So it's actually a pretty nice way to end. To keep the focus on Jesus. To keep him central. To not be led astray by things that would distract our attention from the centrality of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high-impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope. To learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.